We are Fowler Media, bringing you the latest in biblical worldview content that's reaching the culture. Fowler Media is an official 501c3 nonprofit devoted to spreading the influence of biblical worldview in all spheres of influence in Christ Fowler. Today, we have on Terry Linhart discussing how to become a more self-aware leader. So, hey, everyone, this is, uh, thanks for coming on again. Uh, I really appreciate the, the questions that you've had before for the last episode with Valor Media. And we're happy here to have Terry Linhart. Uh, he wrote a book called The Self-Aware Leader, uh, Discovering Your Blind Spots to Reach Your Ministry Potential uh, from IVP. And honestly, this book, it's both convicting and encouraging at the same time. And timely, <laughs> in light of a lot of things that's happened over the last year or so, very relevant. So, uh, Terry, if you don't mind, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and what sparked the book? Sure. Yeah. Well, thank you uh, for having me on the podcast. I appreciate that. And, and, you know, I love that you said it was encouraging, too, because certainly we've read our share of books talking about blind spots and, you know, leadership failures. And we just come away so discouraged or feel like we, uh, you know, got brought into something we weren't allowed to listen to or something. And I wanted it to be encouraging because I wanted it to be uplifting. And we worked hard at that with the IVP uh, staff, for sure. But, you know, it really came out of my years of developing young leaders for ministry and watching them head out into the field and to organizations and churches that were largely prepared to really help someone grow personally. Most ministries just want you to come and do the work and, and put in the time. And I watched people, I watched myself, you know, my own story is this too, that in my twenties, I still had things to work on it. You know, I needed to develop personally and, I've watched enough people, uh, you know, leave and head out and uh, run into these things and they just get let go. And it's easier for a church to just say, hey, we're going to let this person go instead of trying to work with them and, and help them grow as, as a person. And so the book is, the shorthand for a book is, it's kind of a supervisory tool. It's meant to be used in small groups or in a supervisory relationship. And it really does the heavy lifting to bring us some topics that people are sometimes really uncomfortable talking about uh, in church settings in ways that are encouraging. And so just had a pastor yesterday text me from Miami using it with a mentoring relationship. He said, hey, thanks for the book. It's a great tool. And I said, that's perfect. That's exactly what I created it for. And so, yeah, I'm thrilled for it. And, and this year it's been exciting because a lot of people are rediscovering it. It's been out for a couple of years and now it's uh, picking up steam again. Yeah, I, I'm one of those people that, you know, I was searching through various publishers for books on this subject because I'm like, we have a lot of work to do in the church. And yeah. I mean, well, there's a lot, there's a lot of good happening too, but you know. Yeah. Well, the truth is we have work to do our whole lives. And I have a good friend, John Swanson, who helped me write some of the, the retreat guides we put with the book and some of the mm -hmm. questions at the end. And occasionally I'll just be talking to him about something in my life and he'll say, hey, Terry, page, you know, like 85 in your book or something. You know, it's just, it, it's an ongoing process that God's doing in our life that we need I'll to be probably do that during this interview. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of, um, I would like to, well, actually, if you could still tell us more about your background with uh, yeah. the experience and so forth, sure. I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, so uh, I went to college to be a Christian musician. I got there and realized that my talent level probably suggested otherwise, but I was uh, still with a music degree and love it. Uh, got called to youth ministry while there and went into Youth for Christ and quickly became a, a teacher and a trainer within the organization. And that's where uh, God kind of showed me that teaching is kind of my thing. And so a few years later, uh, we had a 
big turnover in our office, which was part of the impetus for the book and just had to work on some of my own issues is about eight or nine years after college and went off to a church and started working on grant programs. And so for the last 20 years, I've been at Bethel University in the Mishawaka South Bend area where I've been doing a variety of roles. Uh, started out with youth ministry, then worship arts, then some administration. And now we're developing extension sites all across the country, uh, partnering with churches to create uh, affordable Christian education right in uh, churches that do ministerial training. Really exciting, uh, very exciting program. And then for the last 10 years, I've been doing some work with Harvard Research Group, where we've been helping organizations like Christianity Today, InterVarsity, Youth for Christ, work on some projects and research of various sizes, and that's been helpful for me to use my research degree. Oh, that's really nice. Could you tell me about the websites that people could go to to find out more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, all of the above, uh, I have terrylinhart.com is my personal site, selfawareleader.org, um, the arborresearchgroup.org, arbor as in the you know thing you walk through when you're going somewhere, which is we help people, Christian organizations, churches get somewhere. That's cool. And then, um, yeah, our extension studies program here at Bethel is BUX, Bethel University extension site, dot betheluniversity.edu, and you can learn more about the program there. That's awesome. Thank you. I appreciate it. So with some... Uh, First question is, uh, what is a self-aware leader? Yeah, it's <laughs> a great question. Yeah. Well, um, you know, the definition, I think, for me is, uh, you know, the purpose of the book isn't that we just become more like um, self-help, right? It's to be open to the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of God in our lives so that we can do what he's called us to do. I love Bob Mulholland's definition of spiritual formation, be conformed to the image of Christ for the sake of others. So I'm a self-aware leader. When I'm paying attention to who I am and ministry and leadership, I'm understanding that I've, my history's got some blind spots. You know, it comes from driving a car, right? You've, you've tried to change lanes perhaps once and there's that little Prius sitting in your blind spot on the left side. You thought you had kind of cleared your blind spots, but you didn't. Or, you know, someone's got a muffler hanging out and is spewing smoke on the road. We can't see that. Others can, but you know, that's the, we need help looking in behind us. There's too many people in ministry that are leaving and they're leading forward and they're leaving a bunch of junk and smelly stuff behind them and they don't know it. And so a self-aware leader allows others, allows God to, to talk, speak into their lives in ways, say, I want to be the best I can be because I want to be the best for you I can be. And I think that's a good definition. That's good. Thank you. That really helped clarify. So how does becoming self-aware help ourselves, our walk with God and our impact on other people? So I think... Self-awareness isn't about all the negative stuff that we have in our lives. I mean, that's what we run to, right? We've got secret sins and we're trying to hide that, you know, we're compulsive gamblers or something, you know, and, and, and certainly, you know, we all have things to work on. But I also think that in the blind spots are some gifting and opportunities we don't know we have as well. And so when we stop and say, I don't know it all, which for, unfortunately, for Christian leaders, for male Christian leaders who have strong personality types, it's hard to say that, you know, I just, I was with a leader this week who's used to, having done everything perfectly has stepped up to a bigger stage. And now there's some things they're realizing they don't do as well as other things because they've been pressed out. And ministry is this 30 ton press. You know, it's like the old Dave Letterman show where he squashed things and he wanted to see what came out the sides or he threw, yeah. you know, it's this, it's this press and out of it oozes our emotional junk and our history and all of that. And Paul certainly was one of the most self-aware leaders in scripture. He said, Hey, I did this and this, but I wasn't this. And if anybody can brag, it's me, but I don't because of this and all this. And, and, and he shows this sense of self-awareness. I think so. If we follow a biblical example of an apostle, then we want to do that. And the, then I can offer to you the best version of me that God's created me to be. 
you know, and I think that's it. And the reality is we don't drift towards better behaviors. We don't. If we're just going to say, I'm just going to go along. It's like, we, you know, it's like if you never care about how you eat or you work out or anything like that, you're never going to get stronger and better. And the same thing is true in our, in how we interact with each other. That's good. I, it reminds me of um, a quote from a Christian philosopher, William Lane Craig. And he said, your greatest apologetic is your life. And that basically, you know, for those who don't know, apologetics is just, you know, having a reason for the hope that's in us. Mm-hmm. And of gentleness and respect. And most of the time, people may not ask you for the reason for the hope that's in you if you're going around s- spreading your garbage. <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I mean, I'll give you an example as a kid. We had a lay leader in our church. My dad's a pastor. And this lay leader was held up as an example of a person of prayer and piety and all this stuff. But yet he was the grumpiest mm-hmm. person. I just didn't ever want to hang around him. And I thought, well, I really, as a teenager, wanted to follow Jesus. I said, if that's what a person of prayer is like in everyday life, then what's the purpose? What, what does prayer get you? You know, that was kind of my thing. And so certainly if you're not in the church and you're looking in, you know, um, there's a great evangelistic book a social sociologist wrote about. It said one of the things we can do in churches is just live our life out in front of people so they can see Oh, that's what it means to be a Christian, yeah. right? Yeah. Salt and light, and, and lived in community uh, among one another. It's it's overlooked. There's passages about how how you live should be above reproach, even with outsiders, and we overlook that. We think, well, if I do these prayers and read the Bible and all, I'm good. But uh, and we'll touch on this later when you, you know you talked about the renovation of the heart, which I want to unpack later on. Uh, very important subject, but. Uh, we recently had uh, an interview with Chuck DeGroat, who also wrote for IVP, on uh, who uh, he wrote a book on when narcissists come to the church. <laughs> <laughs> and um, as many of us know, narcissists have an extreme lack of self-awareness. And um, if we had an environment that fosters self-awareness, do you think there would be less um, narcissistic leaders and unsafe leadership in general? <laughs> Yeah. You know, it's uh, so we're going to get into it here a little bit now and the topic. So unfortunately, um, I when I wrote the book, I worked with some colleagues from Liberty University and we talked about narcissistic personality disorders because it's come up in the literature that um, pastors fall prey to this more than we know. It's more prevalent than we know. And Christian counselors would tell you would, would confirm that. And I don't know that we know how to do otherwise right now. We don't have good models for this, unfortunately, in the church right now. I think it's coming. We want to, but we're in a celebrity culture. Our churches are designed for celebrity culture, and it's hard to shake. And now we have this fascination with authoritarian structures within the church, so we consolidate power, smaller elder boards that don't do anything. And I think we're in an age where over the last three or four years, we've seen God do a work to topple some of these systems. Yeah. You know, suddenly we're being exposed now. We're just, we think we're, uh, you know, at the top and and protected, but we've seen churches uh, who have, you know, kind of protected the pastor's poor behaviors, now exposed Christian ministries, and we hear more. I, I think that, I think God's up to something to say that's that's not the way of the shepherd, you know, yeah. and, and I think the image of, of, Paul has been distorted, you know, as an apostle and how he acted because he cared deeply and he lived among people and, and humbly in ways. He wasn't this fiery, you know, in and out kind of, you know, you can't touch me kind of thing. So, yes, I think that we could get there, but it really is going to take something systems that are different than the ones we're operating in. And that's hard to overcome. 
Yeah, it's almost like trying to move the Titanic from. Yeah. Well, you're you know you're interviewing authors right now. I think the 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 rule the world of writing books has changed. You know, suddenly now it is about getting your ideas out. And so when I have people, you know, last every month I have someone, hey, I want to write a book. How do I do that? And I help them. I love helping them do that. And we've had some get published, but it's not published for money. It's published to get your ideas out. The idea that I'm going to write a book and be famous and have a lot of money. I think those that's certainly flattening. COVID's accelerated that uh, there. So now it is, I say, well, do you want to get your idea out or do you want to be on a platform? And, you know, we've been fascinated with the ideas platform in the Christian community for a while because we have some, you know, Christian leaders who have gone into the business world and bring it back and, and all that. And, and I think influence, and ministry is different than wanting to stand on a platform. Yeah, that's actually, can you, can you touch on that more about influence, yeah. healthy influence versus yeah. uh, sure. healthy platforming and wanting to have too much attention on yourself? Well, yeah, and I need to be careful because uh, you can't just do a one side, you know, wave your hand and say, you know, these are not the platforms you're looking for kind of thing. You know, like Obi-Wan Kenobi, right? So, uh, but the reality is that we just have to be super careful. And ego is is a difficult thing. I was with a, on a Zoom call yesterday with a really strong regional leader. And, you know, a lot of, if if you're an Enneagram fan, you know, most of the people that operate the high level are threes, eights, ones, or, or sevens, sometimes maybe a six in there. And the motivations are different, but there's that sense of, you know, I'm using my gifts uh, to the best of my ability to have the most influence. I'll come to your answer in a second. And so, you know, I've had to say, you know, when I've had opportunities, I, I talk to my wife and they say, well, you know, I'm trying to be humble. I don't want to do that. And she'll say, well, God's wired you this way to do this. So don't shrink from the the moment. You didn't like seek it out. Can you, can you touch on the value of coaches and the Christian life? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think we all need, uh, well, you, I've realized about six years ago that I need male friendships and I need to pursue them more than I, I just take them for granted. And so I have two, I have three really dear friends in my circle here locally and I have three nationally and I spend time with all of them regularly and it's a mutual back and forth in there. I had um, benefited from in the early days for seven years, eight years in ministry, two coaches and they coached me every week. One was on uh, the administration. This is the advantage I think of growing up in a large parent church organization where coaching structures are built in like Young Life, University, Youth for Christ, as opposed to a church where it's kind of like, hey, go out and you know run in front of the cannons and don't get hit. You know, it works out well. Yeah. And don't make too much noise down the hallway, right? Um, so to, yeah, I met with uh, I met with Tom every Monday, and we just talked through my schedule. He saw, and I turned in an actual schedule and then a proposed schedule. So I was accountable for all fifty hours every week. Mm-hmm. And then Tim was my communications coach, where we talked about how to speak and, and the nature of building relationship with teenagers. And you know, the first time I talked, the next day he kind of tore into me a little bit for thirty or forty minutes. Said you were doing great to hear, and then you did this, and it was like, oh, I didn't get that. And and um, I bet, yeah, that was a foundation. I can't. Mm-hmm. Replace and then when I went to grad school, Dave Ron saved that role, you know, and still is a good friend of mine and just helped me. And we wrote our first book together, and that started me on the whole writing journey for all the books I've done. And yeah, I've been really benefited from coaches. And now, though, it's much more mutual. I, I think we need to lean into that because here's why. Here's why I've been with enough leaders, um, some you know, some pretty significant names that you would know from the you know the early evangelical parenters days. I've been with them in their retirements. And what they always talk about isn't all their accomplishments, isn't the articles and the books, it's the name of this person, this person, and this person. It's the relationships that matter most to us at the end of our days. Yeah. And the the relationships are what will stay with us on the new heaven and new earth. Yeah, absolutely. So it's just yeah. amazing what time we spend here in our relationships. Um it's almost like it deepens what's on the other end. <laughs> um, can you touch? Yeah, we have no idea, you know, there, um, you know, we think heaven's so static and there's nothing about God that's static and, you know, yeah. it's just. 
He's done. We think we're entertained. Yeah, we think you have it so good here, but yeah, we still want more. Oh, Imagine yeah. the what for more is taken away and um, yeah. Does Lewis touch on that with, you know, playing in the mud pot patties, if you will, and thinking <laughs> we have it all good, if you will. And it's like God has this whole rich world out here. Um, I want to touch on accountability, healthy accountability mm-hmm. in, in light of coaching and healthy, healthy friendships. In fact, it's probably good to touch on what is healthy friendship versus unhealthy friendship, because you wouldn't believe how many, especially young friends of mine, uh, don't even know what it means to kind of have a real friend versus, oh, hey, you're on my social media, you're my friend. You know what I mean? There's something about learning what it means to have a real friend and valuing that and investing in that friendship versus, I don't know, acquaintances and Mm -hmm. the levels of uh, discernment is what I would say. Because if we're not discerning, we can let unsafe people in our life um, that we call friends. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know Henry Cloud and John Townsend, they wrote a book on safe people. So that's that's part part of the reason why that's relevant. Um, so if you could touch on that, what is healthy accountability in light of being a self aware leader? Because there's an abuse. Yeah, you you want us to solve all the problems here <laughs> in the podcast? How to do friendships? How to do accountability? So accountability is a um, dangerous area, and it's often too too frequently used as a a bully club, like a stick. You beat people over, right? You're accountable to me. I'm your supervisor and so forth. Um, there's two dangerous ditches. Like my, my pastor, David Ingrick, talks about there's two dangerous ditches in, in uh, good, effective leadership, and you learn to avoid both, right? You over-control or you neglect. And you want to do both, right? You want, I mean, you want to be in the middle between both. You want to be able to just have that influence and not be too controlling and yet not neglect and say, hey, whatever, you know, so in the way parents try to have that middle, you know, we need to do that too with others. So a healthy accountability, I think um, institutionally and structurally, you need to be able to be accountable for all your time. I love the idea of once a a month, sorry, of turning in an actual schedule and a proposed schedule. I think that's a basic fundamental supervisory skill. How are you spending your time? And let me see that and to make sure, and then you're, you're doing that. And here's why I think too many churches are falling to either one of the ditches and neglect is probably more so than others. And especially in the area of youth ministry, where I got my start. I'm amazed how many people in youth ministry spend very little time with youth. And all they do is they have this program inside their church building, inside their box, and they want students to come to their box. But I'm not, you know, but they do spend very little time on campus or meeting students. And I just think, you know, that's kind of a soapbox of mine. I go, you should have your time should be with students somewhere, go out wherever they are and whatever time they are. So that's, uh, that's one thing. So healthy accountability is that sense of I'll let you see how I'm spending my time there. Um, also, you can look at all my social media accounts. I'm not going to post anything odd and weird in there. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Healthy accountability too means that um, I'm going to let my, and to me, it's in a supervisory relationship. You know, uh, I'm probably less excited right now in my life about these accountability friendships or groups because I've, been a part of them and I've had men lying to my face. So, and I probably didn't share everything I needed to share with people too. We just, we just choose what we want to say. And then some of us, you know, go out and do other, you know, other things. And so that was really popular in the nineties and eighties and, and, um, but yet too many people were hiding, hiding stuff from each other. So, uh, that's it. And I think the idea of friendship is just, uh, we all have different, this is going to feel odd speaking of this a little bit when you think about friendships with people, but we all have love languages and we think of them in the marriage situation, but you know, there are some things that uh, we like and some is time spent or notes of encouragement, um, gestures of uh, acts of kindness, um, that kind of thing. And, and it's just really helpful to partner and, and, and with others and say, we're going to 
be with you the rest of the Kelly and I are in a family group. We meet every other Friday night. We meet this Saturday though. Um, but we meet every other weekend. We've been doing that for 20 years and we do a variety of things. There are five of us, uh, couples who started. We're now down to four couples and one single. And even tonight, I'm starting a project at home and one of the couples is coming over. And we basically have looked at each other and said, when we're old, we don't want to be alone and we're committed to each other for the rest of our lives. And that's, you know, two or three more decades to go. So, um, it's a really amazing thing. And so when I get job offers and opportunities, um, the hardest part to think through is leaving the family group and moving away. And we've decided we're not doing that now. And so, um, uh, because it means so much to have these people in our lives at this depth for this long. And we want to do it another 20 some years together. That's so, nice. yeah. That's yeah. what uh, so, some people call forever friends. Yeah. I love that. Um, a lot of, a lot of people are looking for that, you know, how to find, yeah. how do, how do you foster that? It sounds like you guys were intentional about this. Yeah. Well, this is not, I mean, this is way away from self-aware leader, but um, I'm telling you, I did a research project for uh, smallgroups.com. So Arbor Research Group, we did a piece with um, smallgroups.com and I learned they're called legacy groups and every church ministry, Saddleback, and you know, we interviewed all the people that wrote small group books and and these are legacy groups. They outlast the church program, which, you know, we change church programs all the time, right? Yeah. But we started as a church program, uh, our Sunday school, hey, let's do adult small groups, right? And then every five or six years, they wanted to change the groups. And so, in my church, my pastor, we were trying to do it every year, which is terrible. Uh, but it was, we were trying to control things. Yeah. We went past that because we just connected and clicked. We had great leaders who nurtured us. We figured out how to do three things. So you asked the question. One is we never judged when someone didn't show up. That's good. Because if it wasn't meaningful enough, if it was meaningful, people would want to show up. So some people will skip for to go see their son run a track. We skip because we're on vacation or you know different things. We don't want to skip because we built this step. Secondly, conflict is a step towards community, right? So chaos and conflict are steps towards community. It's part of, I wrote that in the book too. And I think when we get close, you have to figure out if you become like brothers and sisters, you know that brothers and sisters don't always get get along, right? And so, you know, I was with a guy in Minnesota, I went up to speak, I was probably about self-aware leader and we were in the car and I was talking about my family. He says, dude, how did you get past that final 10%, which is that issue of, can we work through conflict well together when our feelings are hurt? Mm. Where most of the time we move to a new small group and try them out for a while till we get our feelings certain we move to another small group. That's and we decided we, we, yeah, that's a big deal. So that was it. We decided we were, if we were going to act like brother and sister, I mean, we're going to be that close. It'll be that close. And we worked past that conflict moment. That was about six, seven years in. And we've gone through grieving multiple times. That's tragedy. It's been something. Yeah. I, I know it sounds weird for me to say that's good that you went through grieving, <laughs> but uh, my wife and I have chronic illnesses and we went through a lot of different tragedies and yeah. I've, I've noticed a lot of churches aren't very trained on how to help through mm -hmm. grieving, long-term suffering, mm -hmm. lamenting, you know, things like that. They yeah. treat it like it's a sort of a less spiritual thing, uh, some kind of sin or something like that. And it's like, didn't Jesus say to go with the, you know, mourn with those who mourn, weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. Um, that's life. That's real lived in life. Um, Love that. Let me just, I'll get on my soapbox again. So I got one with youth ministry, right? So let me do one about helping people who are hurting. Um, my dad always used to say as a pastor, if you preach to people who are hurting, you got half the audience every Sunday, right? It's maybe a different half. They're hurting people. If we, I think every church should have a grief share. It's a thing you can start program. They should have another group for emotional health, call it something different than that, but just help people. Mental health is the thing that church needs to be weighing in on right now. And uh, that's one thing. And then helping people work through difficulties in their lives. Um, I, I think having an addictions uh, program of some sort 
Um, I know a church that does drug addictions, sexual addictions, and other things, you know, and it's just an honest conversation. It doesn't have to happen on Sunday morning. You don't advertise it. People will find it, right, there. But the church I attend has a few of those, and I'll meet people in the community who don't go to our church, who maybe aren't even Christians, and they'll say, oh, I go to such and such a church, and they'll say, oh, I love that grief share program, or I love that emotional health program because I went there for months and it really helped me, you know, and you think about people with physical disabilities too, you know, coming in, you know, is your church accessible and how do you treat people like that? How do you treat people who, uh, this is so important for a church to figure out. And um, I'm hoping COVID accelerates us and understands we need to do that. I'm just too worried we're going to get back to the entertainment model again. Yeah. I, I, it's, it's a little funny tension place that I've been in because see my wife and I mostly lived a sort of a COVID life before it even happened. We were isolated in homes for the most part because of our chronic illnesses. And uh, it's hard to go to certain local churches because part of it's the building materials and, you know, we have epilepsy and so forth and, you know, chemicals and so forth can cause us to have seizures. Absolutely. We had to be, uh, we had to reinvent, if you will, like, how do we do this? And we listen to sermons online and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, it, it's like, I, that's part of the reason why I started becoming attracted to IBP. Uh, yeah. because they, they, they don't shy away from these topics. Right. Um, they, they're like, yeah, we're going to go there. We're going to go into the controversial if we have to, mm. we're going to talk about it. Um, so I appreciate Yeah. Let me, let me just interject. I don't think they're going into the controversial as much as the debated ones. They, they're going to take on the hot topics. It's, yes. they, they're not trying to be sensationalistic. No, no, I don't think yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And that's more like, we're not afraid yeah. to talk about whatever is needed to talk about. You know what I mean? Like there's so many things that, uh, are like trauma, you know, that's such an important topic. Um, it relates to all of this. Um, yeah. what, what can all of us do, including those listening in to increase self-awareness? Other than reading. Well, my little kiss <laughs> phrase people know me about is take a reaction selfie. You know, anytime you react to something, whether it's just the raise of the shoulders, a little eyebrow, uh, just take, imagine you're taking a little selfie right there. And then later on, uh, get a, get, I love a pencil and paper. I love the scratch, scratch of lead on paper even over a pen and just there's something cognitively about writing in a journal in the morning, whatever comes to mind, however many pages, why did I react that way? And what is that reaction telling me? And it's a little bit of an elevator shaft into the heart down deep inside. And then if you have a trusted friend, my wife is mine, talk about it and just say, I'm noticing this, you know, and, um, and it could be a positive, right? It's not always a negative. Now, why was I particularly joyful and happy yesterday in this moment? You know, what is it about it? I remember that early on in my life, and I said, why was I happy in that moment? And the answer was, because I'm an evangelist at heart. No matter what I'm doing, even at a Christian university, even doing research for Christian organizations and mission-driven businesses, I want them to be successful because the gospel can be furthered. And that's what gets me excited at the end of the day. So that's the one self-aware. And then have someone who you trust and say, hey, how could I How could I have done better? What can I do to be better? And and they don't have to be your coach necessarily. They can be your, your pilgrim's buddy you know someone on the path with you where you just talk about what you're learning i'll give you an example let me i'll just give you an example the other day i was getting on an airplane and we were backed up and i we were i was commenting about um this is this is a real basic thing but um i was commenting about uh the backup and you know what the best way to get on a plane is you know is it front to back and so forth and so on and then the lady in front of me said Hey, I saw a Mythbusters, I saw a Mythbusters episode about this once and I jumped in right away and I was enthusiastic because I got a little bit of a, you know, enthusiastic type personality. And I said, Oh yeah, that one about this, let him go on. And I went on and I could see in her reaction that kind of she shrunk in the moment mm-hmm. and I caught myself and I said, Terry, you just took away her part of the conversation in that moment. You were too dominant. 
in your enthusiasm, you meant well, but here you are, you're a taller male in a conversation with someone who was going to offer something and it was hers to offer and he took it away. And I, and I kind of got on the plane and felt bad. I wanted to reconnect with her and apologize. And, you know, and it wasn't like she was mad or whatever. And I just picked up on a little bit of it. But so I've started to now a conversation to form my fingers like this. I don't know if people are watching the video or not, but kind of like I'm holding a ping pong ball. And I thought for me, from now on, conversation is going to be like a ping pong ball. I don't want to be an older man who talks a lot, like something that I see a lot, right? We talk more as we age. I want to now be someone who listens as much as I talk. So it's like ping pong. They hit the ball to you, you hit the ball back to me. And when the ball's on your side of the net, I don't run over and play your shot. I let you play your shot. And so I find that that's a little catchphrase to keep me self-aware. Terry, are you playing ping pong in this moment, in this conversation? Or are you trying to play both sides of the net? That's actually, that's very helpful because I'm similar to you. I'm an evangelist type of person at heart. And I can not always realize that's why I said this book was a little convicting. <laughs> you know, my wife and I, you know, we've been together for around 10 years now. Um, she's my best friend and also my mm-hmm. accountability. And I told mm-hmm. her a long time ago, I said, you know, if I seem out of alignment, let me know. I don't want you to be afraid to tell me because like our marriage, a, a book that really impacted me was Gary Thomas's book on sacred marriage. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's about how marriage helps you to, to be sanctified more because it's like you're in the terrain of this person's going to tell you what's up, you know? And, um, she, I told, I told her, I was like, you know, I, I need to know. And she's like, well, I know you're passionate and you get excited, but you don't realize that sometimes you can accidentally talk over other people. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, but it's, it's a, a process. Yeah. Um, yeah. and one of the fruits, one of the fruit of the spirit is uh, self-control. And I'm like, help me Holy Spirit self-control, you know, because that goes into the communication element and listening. It takes self-control to listen. Um, so yeah, take a ping pong with you next time. It works. It's I'm going to have to. <laughs> something. Yeah, I'm going to mentally see this, this ping pong table. There, and there you go. Um, so can you explain how self-care ties in with self-awareness and how it's not selfish as you explain in your book, um, especially it's relating to uh, page 25 with a quote from Parker Palmer. Um, let me open it up just for context for those who are listening to. So um, let's see here. I said 25. Let me make sure. Yes. Okay. Parker Palmer. Um, I, I, I do a lot of underlining. So. Yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> um, that's why I got to find my spot where that quote is from Parker Palmer. There it is. Self-care is never a selfish act. Right. Um, it, it is simply good stewardship of the only gift I have. Mm-hmm. That really jumped out. Yeah, no, I love that quote. And and it's it's helpful. Let's think of it in a ministry context. So you're dropped into a community of people, whatever it is, paid, volunteer, or otherwise, you could be that. And suddenly how you interact in that community plays a role in the messaging there, which is why Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 is very aware of all the things he's gone through. And he comes out, and he says, we're treasure in jars of clay, right? We have this treasure inside that's invaluable, but we are crack pots in the outside. And so understanding that and, and yet still being, you know, going through feeling crushed, being perplexed, but not in despair and persevering and all that. It was really helpful. So, so at its foundation, a lot of the things that, that Goldman, wrote emotional intelligence, where this whole self-care and, you know, self-awareness comes from listed five things. And he says, we're being judged by a new yardstick this day. It's not our talents and our gifts and whatever. It's how well we get along. Like the world's flattening. COVID flattened it even more. How well you exist in a team. Uh, now people in the last 10 years get fired because they weren't a good fit. You would never have heard about that 30, 40 yeah. years ago, you know, especially in colleges. I mean, you had professors, and you were 
tyrants at times and they don't and now they're they don't they don't get tenure they don't stay you know um so anyway the the five he lists are impulse control which we talked about we get that but stress management anger management mm. managing sadness and problem solving those are all things that are related to the self-awareness and uh and self-care and so if you if you can manage your stress and manage your anger manage your sadness and then be able to solve problems think about that in the ministry context right it plays out in there so suddenly i mean this was the dispute between paul and barnabas over john mark right on the dock is the whole thing is is this guy fit for ministry or not and paul had some pretty high standards and barnabas was always the encouraging one but you know so there is responsibility taking and all of that there that really matters in the day-to-day ministry and if you can't do those things your ministry is going to suffer in light of the fact that you may have the best lesson plans ever, you know, uh, because you're going to be over, you're, you're not, you talked about talking over in conversation, your own junk's going to be overrunning your message. And it's just going to be, yeah, it's not going to end well. Yeah. <laughs> That's why, uh, I, you know, it's funny is I, 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 I'm thankful my wife helped me with that because I do love hearing people's stories and asking them questions, but then I get excited in the middle of that. And then it's like, I see all these things connecting and I'm like, boom, 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 boom. And I'm hitting those points. And I'm like, Oh no, I'm so sorry. You know? So it's a good process with accountability to say, Hey, am I, am I overdoing it type thing? Um, so let me see, you mentioned in your book, the concept, um, of renovating your heart. Mm. Uh, do you mind explaining how we can renovate our, well, first of all, what is, what does that mean? You know, what does it mean to renovate your heart? Well, yeah, this is, of course, Dallas Willard's, uh, you know, theme and uh, renovation of the heart. And I'm probably not going to do it justice. And and after I talk about it, people are going to go, well, he didn't do very good with that. So I would just say, first off, go read Dallas Willard about (laughs) renovating your heart. You know, I I think it's um, a a practice of, and it ties to self-awareness a little bit. Um, Eugene Peterson's book, Under the Unforgivable Plan, Unpardonable Plant, sorry, the story of Jonah uh, mm-hmm. in the pastoral life it was really helpful for me because some of the things Jonah walked through and Peterson walks through in that book uh, were challenging to me. I also like his Five Smooth Stones book on pastoral theology. Those are timeless books in that. And in there, he weaves uh, a combination of uh, what's my heart? What's God's heart? And then what's blocking the two from being in sync together? And it's that blockage is what we're talking about today. How is it that I'm not allowing God's heart? Sorry. How is it that I'm not allowing God's heart? Let me start again. How is it I'm not allowing God's heart to shape, to connect with my heart in a way where, um, uh, you know, I'm more like him. And to me, this is the simplest thing in renovation art. I don't mean to simplify it in weird ways, but it's being with Jesus. This, this idea of I spend time with Jesus and that shapes me is the same as the adage that you and I are that the, the average, the mean of the five people we spend the most time with, or if we're with someone who's really good at something, we take on his or her qualities in some ways. You know, I think if we went golfing with Phil Mickelson, we'd become better golfers just because we'd watch him and do things. So in the same way, what, no, not in the same way, in a greater way, when we're with Jesus, there's something about his presence and his power in our lives that shapes us. And he starts pointing at some things and we renovate our heart in significant ways. I like that. Thank you. Um, and why, in some sense, it's obvious, but I like to hit on it anyway. Why is renovating your heart important? Well, I think, I think it's in this encounter that we see with Jesus with people sometimes fascinating to me that he, um, will come to someone in need, clearly in need, who's blind, crippled, whatever. 
and he'll ask him the question, what do you want me to do for you? Mm-hmm. And he, what he's trying to get at is the faith desire thing. You know, what is it we really desire in whom or what do we have our faith? Which is why in some cases, because he's divine, people are healed. And he says, your faith is maybe whole. You know, there's something about this trust relationship that's better than belief, right? You know, the, the Greek word for trust, for belief is actually better translated trust. Like we put our all in him mm-hmm. and we have that. So knowing our desires. So then this renovation of the heart, our heart is deceptive, right? So if we are, we can say, hey, I really, I really don't want to be wealthy or I really don't want to be famous or, you know, I really don't, whatever it is, right? I really don't want to be in control or I don't really don't want everybody to like me or I really don't want everybody to please. I mean, all these things, but down deep inside, that's, part of how we're wired and we have to figure that out and sanctify that in some ways. Well, that's what Jesus does. You know, it's the sense of, and, and theologically, you know, some denominations and traditions have this as a work of the Holy spirit in their life, or there's this, this sanctification process uh, going on in, in the hearts. And so I think that is significant and it's an encounter with God. It's not something we can do and snap our fingers and it's done. It's something that happens over time. We don't always get it right. There is forgiveness, but the sense of I'm working on the very wellspring of my heart. And that's my desire. What is it that I love? And can I identify that? That I mean, this is important because we we say words that some of us know, but not everyone knows. Like sanctification, what does that mean? Mm. And there was another word you said. If you can back up a little, what was that word? Um, I'm sorry, I can't remember the second word. Yeah. Uh, what well, we talking about? Trust and um, yeah, I don't remember. Sorry. I don't know what word you're referring to. Forgiveness. That's it. Oh, forgiveness. Oh, yeah. That one. (laughs) Yeah, forgiveness is another. So, sanctification first, define that. And the second one, why is that important too? Yeah. Uh, Because people abuse that, you know, you just forgive. But forgiveness is a process too. It's 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 a it's obedience, but it's a process. Like, you know, 70 times. So, if somebody keeps abusing you or whatever, you know, it's it's a process. So, could you... And because also it's abusive in the sense abused in the sense that somebody's told you have to forgive, therefore you have to have that person in your life. But some people may not be safe to have in our life. So if you could touch on sanctification and forgiveness. So yeah, I, I'm probably not gonna. I'll just do the forgiveness one first. So for me, forgiveness was an interaction with God, forgiving our sins, separating our sins as far as the east is from the west, and choosing to remember them no more. Right. So that is the sense of I am forgiven. Now uh, we probably all have things uh, that we remember that we beat ourselves up about. Oh, I made a mistake. It wouldn't even be necessarily sin. They're just you know uh, things we did that was kind of bonehead, you know, in our lives, and so we have that. Um, yeah, then you're forgiving others, and and you know you don't want to put up with abuse certainly, and there's things you can, there comes to a moment where you can, you know, if you want to keep biblical analogies, you shake the dust off your sandals and you move along, right? There's, there's, I love this, the parable of the sower and the seed is a fertile soil. Is it just being choked out? Well, I'll hang around for that. You know, if it's other things, I'll probably reevaluate this again, evangelist to heart. So if there's two or three things where I go, well, they're, they're, they're not open to this and then we'll probably just move along to something else. You know, I, I don't have to keep putting up with poor behavior over and over and now. But the sanctification piece is, you know, it, the definition is to be set apart for the work of God. Thank you for tuning in to Valor Media's podcast. If you would like to see this interview in full, head on over to ValorMedia.org's media room. That's ValorMedia.org. Or head on over to our YouTube channel. The links will be provided in our description. If you have any topics you want us to discuss here or have any questions about this podcast episode, we would more than love to hear your feedback. Until next time, go forth in Christ's valor.